Goodyear Auto Service takes pride in caring for your car. Get in the groove with Goodyear's technician tips. Number 13, inspect your tread. Like a podcast, you're an investigative journalist finding the cracks in the case. And number 64, pump your brakes before you crank that debate. Coming in for routine brake checks are essential for your safety. Goodyear Auto Service, here for the bumps in the road. Get more tips at GoodyearAutoService.com. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I remember walking into an observatory dome in an afternoon before I was going to observe and thinking that it reminded me of a theater on the afternoon before a play. And there's a whole crew working on a telescope during the day, and they're checking instruments and making sure everything's working properly for when the stars arrive. It's a very, it was a very literal comparison. I loved that when astronomers, when we describe our observing, we'll say, oh, I have a three night run. So we even use the same terminology as theater. But I loved that sort of wonderful waiting feeling of we're getting everything ready. We have our plan. We have our script. We know what we're going to do. And then watching the sun go down and watching the planet spin and getting ready to go inside and say, all right, now we're starting. So that's just That's the moment, I think, when I and when many of my colleagues just really stand there and go, boy, this is a good job. That's Emily Levesque, an astronomer who's written a charming and illuminating book about what it's like to be an astronomer today at a time when astronomy is no longer gazing at the stars through the eyepiece of a telescope. Her book is titled The Last Stargazers. And in it, she describes how new telescopes and new ways of interpreting what they reveal of the heavens is giving astronomers and the rest of us a new sense of wonderment about the universe. I'm really excited to be talking with you today because, you know, we talk a lot about communication on this show. And you're such a terrific communicator. Do you follow certain ideas, certain techniques? Do you do it deliberately or are you just terrific at it? Um, I've really always loved storytelling and I think my first two loves in life were science and writing. So I've, I kind of grew up really loving science, but loving the storytelling and sort of mystery almost aspect of it. I think that's where it came from, but it's just been something I've always enjoyed. When I read in your book, what got you interested in astronomy, there was the background that your parents were both amateur astronomers. That would dra- you'd all drag the telescope out in the backyard and stuff like that. But the thing that interested me was when that comet or asteroid smashed into Jupiter, and we all read about it. You report in your book that what made you actually want to become an astronomer was seeing a video of the excitement of the astronomers when they observed that thing. Tell me about that. Yeah, I um so that happened when I was 9 and by then I was already interested in astronomy. My parents weren't 
quite amateur astronomers so much as they were amateur scientists, period. Uh, we were always into some wonderful, quirky thing in our house. We were really into birds or planting things in the backyard or bugs. So they were just so great about encouraging curiosity about the natural world. But they weren't trained scientists. They just had this curiosity that they passed on to me. So I knew I liked space, but I had no idea what a scientist's job was. I didn't know any scientists growing up. I'd never met an astronomer or anything like that. And I was kind of curious about, you know, what are these people's days actually like? And seeing the scientists react when they saw this comet crash into Jupiter, and they saw the pictures that Hubble took, and they saw how dramatic they were, they just got so excited. And they were all just like cheering and like unabashedly geeking out and doing it together. And I remember watching them on TV. I was like eating dinner, and I think I like had a fork halfway to my mouth, just frozen, and thinking, oh, they're having so much fun. These are scientists, and they're happy, and they're freaking out about how cool this new astronomical discovery is, and they're doing it together. I want to do that. Like, I can't wait to join them. So that was such a spark to getting me fully invested in this as a career. The book is called The Last Stargazers, and it's a wonderful account of how astronomy went from those murky glass plates a long time ago to now these huge mirrors and now moving out of that into just pure data, right? I mean, how much, how much actual observing do you do of images and how much are you, are you um, working through numbers, data? It's a great question. So, I mean, we we store all of our images as numbers now. All of our data is digital. So whether we're taking a picture of a star or a galaxy or whether we're gathering that light and then sort of sorting it out by color to learn about the chemistry of the object, we have a bunch of different techniques we use to gather data, but the data is all digital. And that's wonderful because it means we can kind of copy paste it and duplicate it and mess with it and learn how to kind of crunch it and then pull science out of it. But that work can take months. So we will be sustained for many months by maybe a night or two of observing at a telescope. And time at telescopes is very precious. It's competitive. It's usually very high stakes. You show up and you've got this kind of ticking clock keeping you on your toes throughout the whole night going, oh, I need to get this data before a cloud rolls in or the telescope breaks. And this is the only night I have tomorrow, no matter what goes wrong, someone else is coming with their own science. So there's an interesting gravity given to just a night or two at a telescope because we know how much we need to get out of the night. And we know that that data is going to be what we focus our research on for months afterward. So let me ask you, let me follow up on that. It sounds like you're saying you don't turn the data much into images. Is that true? Sometimes people will turn their data into images. It depends on the kind of science we're doing. So you see these gorgeous pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope, and those are images that have been built and sort of composited from Hubble observations that are sensitive to different colors. So they might take a picture of a galaxy in ultraviolet light, and then a picture of the galaxy in the kind of light we see with our eyes, and then another picture in infrared light. And then they'll stack them together to give us what looks like a multicolor image of that galaxy. So sometimes people will literally take images and use them to figure things out like the shape of the galaxy or where you might spot stars or dust or gas in the galaxy. 
other science and the science that I specialize in, we actually don't take a straight up picture. We'll gather light from a star, we'll sort it out according to its wavelength or its color, and we look for little bright or dim points at different specific colors that are caused by atoms or molecules in the object we're studying. So it gives us the kind of chemical fingerprint of what we're looking at, and from that you can learn things like the temperature of a star or how fast a galaxy is moving away from us and things like that. But it's it's not very photogenic. There's just great scientific power in it. But I've, I've disappointed a lot of reporters who will say, oh, do you have a really pretty picture of your research? I was like, and I'll say, I have this fabulous squiggly line. You'll love it. And they're disappointed, but the science that comes out of it is great. That I am talking about communication. I would imagine that does isolate the astronomer a little bit from ordinary people like me who can understand a little better if I see something that looks like a celestial object and not squiggly lines. When you you give a talk for the public, do you translate it into images we can get? I actually will sometimes give people a squiggly line and talk them through it because I think that this idea of communicating and storytelling ties back to being able to explain something like that to someone. I've never understood my science as well as I have when I've had to teach it to a class or share it with a big audience. And I love getting them excited about a squiggly line and going, well, all right, here's the colors that this represents. And here's why this little bump and wiggle on the line got in this squiggly line, got me and all my colleagues just jumping with excitement and getting people to buy into that and get as excited as we did is always so satisfying. Now, you got excited early on in your career with, a, with something called, do I have this right, a red supergiant. What's a red supergiant? Why, why did you choose to study that? So I got interested in red supergiants because halfway through college, and this is a story I actually tell in The Last Stargazers, halfway through college, I got the opportunity to do a summer research project out at Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff. And my research advisor for that project, his name's Phil Massey, gave me two choices. He said I could work on blue supergiants or red supergiants. And at the time, I was just learning physics and just learning astronomy, but I knew I was fascinated by black holes. I thought black holes were cool since I read about them in a children's book when I was five. And I knew that black holes were what happened after stars died, and I knew that red supergiants were stars that were further along their lifetimes. So when the stars are born, they're blue, they're so hot, they glow blue. And then over the course of their lives, they cool off and they puff up and they turn from this sort of white hot blue color to this colder reddish color. So I knew that red supergiant meant a star that was closer to dying, which meant a star that was closer to a black hole. And that's how I chose. It was literally a red versus blue decision. And then I just got fascinated by them. That's great. Is it known whether every star of any kind goes through a similar process of life and death, or are there different kinds of births and different kinds of deaths? There are different kinds of births and different kinds of deaths, and it depends on the mass of a star. We tie almost everything we know about stars to how massive they are. So a star like our sun will not become a red supergiant, and it won't die as a supernova, and it won't leave behind a black hole because it's too low mass. Our sun will puff up to a big red star, but it won't be nearly as big as a red supergiant. Um, Astronomers, I have to admit, are not the most creative at naming things. So our sun will become a red giant. 
giant and supergiant sound like almost identical words, but they wind up meaning really different things. Huge difference in size, right? Yep. It's just, it's a difference in size and a difference in mass. So our sun will puff up and become red, but not nearly as big as a red supergiant. And it will eventually sort of foof off its outer layers and leave behind this beautiful little bubble of gas that we call a planetary nebula and will leave behind its leftover core. So it will die, but it'll die a kind of slow, peaceful death 10 billion years into the future. And at the other end of the scale, a very massive star, something that's 50, 60, 70 times the mass of our sun, may only live a few million years. It dies in this dramatic supernova, and then it leaves behind a black hole. So all stars are born and age and die, but exactly how they do that depends on their mass. What you described as your most exciting discovery was so interesting. What One night you, you observed a weird star? Yes. So I've always been really interested in how stars like this work. And as part of that research, we'd found a few red supergiants that looked a little odd compared to your sort of average enormous about to explode star. I know that sounds silly, but there can be a sort of normal set and then the weird ones that we found. We'd found a few that were changing their temperatures in a way we didn't expect and that were getting brighter and dimmer in a way we didn't expect. And we published a paper on them and then got an email from a woman named Anna Zhitkov. And she wrote to us and said, me and back in the 1970s, Kip Thorne and I conceived of this idea of a totally different type of star. I think you might have found them. Have you considered searching for them? And we hadn't thought about it before, but that was such an exciting email to get that we designed a search for how to find these weird stars. So their weird idea was that there could be stars out there, they're nicknamed Thorn-Zhitkov objects after Kip Thorne and Anna Zhitkov, that don't quite work like normal stars. A star like our sun is able to support itself against its own gravity by fusion in its core. It'll fuse hydrogen into helium and kind of use that as fuel to stay alive. Their idea was that a Thorn-Zhitkov object wouldn't have fusion in its core supporting it. It would actually be supported by these really exotic principles of quantum physics. And the only sign that a star like this might exist would be these very subtle differences in the chemistry of the surface of the star. That strange physics going on deep inside would stir up weird elements that would drift to the surface of the star that we could look for. You could look for those elements coming out off the surface of the star by looking at their colors? Exactly, yeah. We designed a search to look at the colors of a bunch of different big, cold red stars like this. Um, one of the challenges is that the elements that would we'd see a lot of are really exotic elements. These are things like molybdenum or rubidium, like buried way up the periodic table. And we don't know how much molybdenum is in a normal red supergiant. So we searched this whole set thinking, well, we'll look for the normal quantity in these stars and this first project will just set a baseline. We probably won't find a Thorn-Jitgov object, but we'll get a nice start. And to our utter shock, one of the stars that we looked at in that first initial search had exactly the chemical fingerprint that was predicted for a Thorn-Jitgov object. So to our surprise, we think we found the first of this new strange type of star. If I have this right, I get the impression that Thorne and Zhitkov arrived at this hypothesis that there was an object like that 
just through the math? Is that what helped them predict it? Yes. It's this wonderful consequence of, you know, an infinite universe that if physics allows something to exist, then it should exist. So they had just kind of gone through going, you know, could we support a star from the inside in a way that is different than the classic fusion model? And they just imagined that a star like this could exist. And then research in the years since tried to look at, well, how could you make a star like this. We think they come from two types of stars that will merge. Or how long would a star like this live? Or what would it look like? But the initial idea, yeah, just came out of the math demanding that a star like this should work. So on paper, they said it probably is there. And then 30 or 40 years later, you saw it. Yep. <laughs> Amazing. I'm going to make a little experiment here and see if I can, how far into this I can go. Kip Thorne is dear to my heart. Because when I was getting ready to play Richard Feynman in the play QED, Kip spent hours with me teaching me about gluon tubes and things that hold particles together at the subatomic level. And I was very taken with him. And I wonder if you can help me understand the difference between how a normal star works at its core and the way a thorn zhipkov object works. So in a star like our sun or in a normal red supergiant, the stars are maintaining this very delicate balancing act. So there's this inward press of gravity, and that's fighting the energy generated in the star's core by nuclear fusion. So you create energy by fusing hydrogen into helium or helium into carbon or any one of a number of fusion processes that can happen deep in the heart of a star. And the energy generated by that sort of help keeps the star, helps keep the star balanced and alive. What's going on in the weird star? So what's going on in the weird star is we think a Thorn-Jitkov object is a red supergiant that has swallowed the sort of leftover husk of what used to be a companion star. And that's something called a neutron star. So the neutron star is supported by a principle of quantum physics that says that you can't stick neutrons that have the same properties very close together. And if you squeeze them very close together, they start to act like, you know, annoyed passengers on a train. And they'll almost elbow each other and say, nope, we, we can't be this close together. That violates rules of quantum physics. And they actually exert an outward force. And that force is enough to support an entire neutron star. So what Kip and Anna imagined was a neutron star swallowed by a red supergiant that actually spirals in and lands at the center of the red supergiant and is able to support this much bigger star against gravitational collapse. And on paper and mathematically it worked. The question just for a long time was, how do you prove that that's happening? How do you prove that there's a neutron star and this crazy quantum physics principle going on deep inside what from the outside looks like a normal star? Well, the experiment worked. I understood everything you said, and I will probably remember this verbatim for the next 20 minutes. After our break, I asked Emily Levesque what inspired her to write her book, The Last Stargazers, and why it is that while astronomers may spend less time gazing at the heavens and more time looking at numbers on their laptops, the hours they do spend in observatories are still thrilling. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. 
If you visit patreon.com slash clear and vivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors. And there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free, but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Aldous Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Emily Levesque. One of the things I was really interested in was how vivid you got about what it's like to be an astronomer. What the, what the, I was going to say what the daily life is like, but it's really more like what the nightly life is like. What's, yes. what's it like to be on a run and start your evening when the sun goes down and end it when it goes up, I guess. Oh, it's it's my favorite part of the job. And I interviewed more than 100 of my colleagues for the book. And many of them said the same thing. It's one of their favorite parts of the job. A question that I actually asked every single person I talked to was, what is your most vivid memory of observing? And what I specifically wanted was sort of their sense memories of the job, of standing on the mountain as the sun goes down. So I would almost tell them to shut their eyes and ask, you know, you're observing, what do you hear, what do you smell? And the answers I got were wonderful. People would describe watching the sunset, or they'd describe hearing this grinding of the telescope dome turning or smelling stale coffee or the machine oil that's just in the walls. Um, Observatories are such unusual places. And I knew there were places that the vast majority of my readers wouldn't have been to. So I wanted these sense details to kind of bring people to these places. Uh, For me, what I always loved 
was the afternoon and then evening right before observing started because it reminded me, um, I remember walking into an observatory dome in an afternoon before I was going to observe and thinking that it reminded me of a theater on the afternoon before a play because it's kind of dark and cool inside and, you know, maybe the door is open and you can see sunlight leaking in and there's a whole crew working on a telescope during the day. There's support staff at observatories that are crucial to these telescopes operations and they're checking instruments and making sure everything's working properly for when the stars arrive. It's a very, it was a very literal comparison. Um, I loved that when astronomers, when we describe our observing, we'll say, oh, I have a three night run. So we even use the same terminology as theater. But I loved that sort of wonderful waiting feeling of we're getting everything ready. We have our plan. We have our script. We know what we're going to do. And then watching the sun go down and watching the planet spin and getting ready to go inside and say, all right, now we're starting. So that's just, that's the moment I think when I and when many of my colleagues just really stand there and go, boy, this is a good job. So what happens around three in the morning when you're starting to get loopy from no sleep? What goes on then? Yeah, at three in the morning, all the romance is gone. Um, at least early on when you're learning how to keep yourself awake. At 10 or 11 p.m., you'll be going through a checklist and the telescope's working and everything's going great and you're buzzing and you think, oh, I could do this all night. And then by three in the morning, you're thinking, you know, the universe is really inspiring, but man, pillows are just the most beautiful thing in the universe right now. <laughs> and you just get very tired and this kind of haze sets in and you're still trying to do astrophysics while you are very tired and probably on a strange time zone. Explain that because it a minute ago it sounded like the, re, the, the most important work is crunching the numbers that you get after the run is over. What are you doing during the run that involves interpreting what you're seeing or looking for things and making last-second decisions? So sometimes we'll be simply trying to keep up with our plan. Um, since telescope time is so precious, we don't tend to go and open a telescope at night and say, oh, I wonder what I'll point at tonight. We'll have a list saying, I want to look at this star, this star, this star for exactly this long. And if anything goes wrong and your list gets thrown off kilter, you risk losing science. So sometimes you're just hurrying to keep up. Sometimes you are taking quick looks at the data as it comes in. You'll be downloading a digital file of what you just got and quickly glancing at it to say, oh good, the image looks the way I expected it to look, or the quality of the data that we're getting is sufficient for the science we want to do. So you'll be working on that. And then as you get tired or you sort of, your eyes may drift over to your email, or you're also keeping an eye on your checklist so that you, you know, stay on task, but it becomes this interesting balancing act that you have to sustain through the whole night until the sun comes up. You brought back a memory when you talked about looking at the sun go, going down before the run starts. Uh, the night that I had that emergency operation in Chile, we were at the top of Cerro Tololo, and the astronomers said, well, the sun's about to set. Let's all go outside and look at that interesting phenomenon. And I wonder if you've ever seen it. And just as the sun went behind the mountain, there was this little flare of light. Some of us saw it and some of us didn't. Graham Shedd, who produces this podcast and was producing that television series that we did together, said he thought he thought we were kidding him, that we, that we only saying we saw it. Have you ever seen that little flare of light? I have. It's called the green flash. So it is this little flare of green light. 
And I'm so glad you got to see it in Chile because it's one of the best places to see it. And um, it happens as a sort of optical quirk of the sun setting and setting over a very flat background or if you were to catch just the right angle of the sun going down behind a mountain. Um, I remember getting taken out on my very first observing run and watching the sunset in Arizona and being told, oh, look for the green flash. And it's the idea of the atmosphere bending the light from the sun and at the very extreme angle of a sunset just before the sun disappears, that final sliver of sun we can see looks bright green. Um, And I've been at so many observatories where astronomers sort of make a ritual of going out and watching the sun go down and looking for the green flash. And I'm sure there's reasoning people would give, oh, well, we're checking on the quality of the sky and making sure the data will look really good. But I think it's just because it's beautiful. And it's such a great chance to see that while we're in these remote, incredible places. You know, you talk, as you just did, so often about the excitement, the joy, the wonder of it. And people have been looking up at the sky since there have been people. Some of the earliest expressions of our curiosity, some of them have, many of them have been stargazing, trying to figure it out, what's going on. But we don't, we're reaching an age now where we're not looking up so much anymore. We're looking down at our phones. And I wonder if people have the same the same incentive to get excited about the sky. I could reduce it to a kind of a square question. Why should people study astronomy? I I love getting this question. Um, and I actually write about it in The Last Stargazers, and it ties into why the book is titled The Last Stargazers. Um, I think that when we ask about why humanity should study the stars, there's a few questions. Um, the stars teach us a great deal about physics and about how the universe works. And we never know where pure research is going to lead. You think about when the electron was first discovered in an age that predated electronics. It was a quirky discovery, and nowadays it's such a fundamental part of what we do. So we never know where the science is going to lead us. I always like the more fantastical version of this, where it makes us good citizens of the universe, and it makes us human. It's in our nature to be this curious and to look at distant places and to ask questions and to figure out our place in it and how it works. And then when you ask an astronomer, if you ask me why I study astronomy, it's a difficult question to answer in the same way that if you ask someone, you know, why they love their spouse, you kind of get, well, I just do, or it it just works, or people will start stumbling over the answer. And the best thing that I can come up with is that I have to. It's such a drive from inside and it's such this, such a love for curiosity and studying the sky. And it's something that I heard from a lot of my colleagues while I was researching The Last Stargazers. And it was something they asked me when I told them the title. They said, well, why is it, why are you calling your book The Last Stargazers? Are we the last ones? Like, are we really going to not have people stargazing and looking up anymore? And I saw it as a little bit of a challenge saying, well, the way that we do research in astronomy is changing. We don't look through telescopes with our eyes anymore. We don't capture images on glass plates. We take digital photos. So we don't stargaze in the traditional sense. We might stargaze sitting at our laptop, looking at the zeros and ones, but the science is no less beautiful. 
And similarly, people are still curious about what goes on in space. And no matter how fascinating the internet is or how fascinating our phones are, people's imagination will get captured by seeing something like the first photograph of a black hole or the discovery of a planet that might host life. My favorite example of this this year was the Naked Eye Comet that passed by in July. We had a comet in the Northern Hemisphere that you could easily see with the naked eye. And I remember going out to a park here in Seattle and seeing folks wearing masks, socially distanced, because it's so difficult for us to even be close to one another right now. But everybody was sharing this experience of staring up at a comet. And sure, everyone was taking pictures of it with their phones, but it was a moment of shared joy that I think astronomy really gives us. It gives us something that we can all look at and something we can all wonder about and ask questions about and sort of be humans together. The excitement that you feel is possible when you get to do the work. And I was struck by something that you said in the book about the effect of moving to big data like this, what you just were describing about the new way you gaze at stars through the data. And you said it made, it seems to make astronomy more democratic because it's not as affected by your affiliation with a, a great university or the kind of funding you get or your gender. So I picked up on gender a lot. What tended to be the obstructions in terms of gender before the data was open to everybody? I think this was most prevalent in the sort of first half of the 20th century because as we started building bigger and bigger telescopes, these telescopes would immediately be a limited but coveted resource. This telescope time that people would apply for would be given to men, and they would be called the principal investigator or the PI of a night of observing or a dedicated stretch of time at the telescope. And for a long time, women were not PIs. Women were not invited to lead observations. At a couple observatories in California, women were not allowed to stay on the mountain. There was a dormitory. Um, the dormitories got nicknamed the monasteries because they were all men. And it meant that for women, observing at telescopes was very hard. Now, women went ahead and observed with these telescopes anyway. They would serve as their male colleagues, quote, assistants, even though they were the ones doing most of the research or they would sort of battle their way into getting time. So it didn't stop women from doing the science that they desperately wanted to do. It just made it harder. And today, there's no such restriction. Women can be leads of grants, telescopes. The on-paper gender discrimination has utterly disappeared. But telescopes are still rare resources and competitive to get. And some are still easier to access if you're at a university that has preferred access. So something like a telescope that takes heaps and heaps of survey data and then immediately publishes the data online offers anybody at any institution a chance to work with the data and sort of stargaze in the zeros and ones and pull science out of it, even if they weren't granted a night of telescope time for their own work. You know, I have so many more things to ask you, but we're reaching the end of our time. We end every show with seven quick questions, and they're, they're, they're roughly about communication. What do you wish you really understood? What do I wish I really understood? I would like to understand the inside of a red supergiant. 
Um, it, it sounds like a really wonky kind of niche thing, but here's why it's interesting. If we understand the inside of a star, we understand so many things about how the universe works. We, um, there's the famous Carl Sagan quote, we're all made of star stuff. So if we understand the inside of a red supergiant, that means we understand fusion and how we generate energy. It means we understand how stars explode and how they fling material back out into the universe to make new stars and kind of keep that cycle going. And it's something that I love about astronomy and that I love about science. It sounds like a silly, narrow little interest, but there's so much understanding that sprouts out of that one thing. So I would love to understand that and then have all the wonderful consequences that come with it. I think I never got such a cosmic answer to that question. That's great. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Uh, so my, I have a very scientist answer to this. Um, I know there's research on how this doesn't work, but I can't help it. I try to present them with the facts that are right. Um, I try to show them why the right facts are supported, try to get them excited and engaged and kind of thinking critically about the topic. Um, I know people can get very entrenched in believing something that's wrong, so I may not change their idea just by saying, no, the right thing is this. But it might plant a seed in their mind and it might rattle around a little bit when they think on the topic and it might help them get to facts that are a little more fact-based. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, the strangest question. Um, I remember giving, I was leading a planetarium show once and I had a little girl ask me a question at the end. She was about four or five and she stood up, she could barely see over the seat in the planetarium, and she squeaks out, why is Earth the best planet ever? And that is by far the best question and the oddest question I've ever gotten. And I remember kind of mulling it over going, yeah. <laughs> My answer would be because of you. Exactly. It's like, well, you live here, your parents live here, our pets live here, Earth's great. But it was just such a cute question to get. Okay, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? How do I stop a compulsive talker? Um, I <laughs> I usually wind up just mowing over them and talking right back. <laughs> um, uh, sometimes I try to just sort of not give them anything, like very muted responses or limited acknowledgments, because if they're talking to convince me of something, they'll eventually want to like check in to make sure I'm listening. But a lot of times compulsive talkers just kind of want to hear themselves talk or filibuster. So I'll just cut them off is the only way to stop them. I'm sure it's not the most polite approach, but it does sometimes work. Okay, let's say you're at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a true, genuine conversation with that person? I always try when meeting someone new and talking to them to get at what lights them up and what gets them really enthusiastic and engaged because enthusiasm is just this wonderful contagion. And once they're telling me what they're excited about, I'll get excited and go along with them. And getting at something that gets them enthused is almost more important to me than the topic itself. Like, I've had fascinating conversations about the weather. Um, I've had fascinating conversations at parties about audio engineering or, you know, font design. And I don't care if somebody can get lit up and enthused and get me excited about it. I'll talk to them all night. And again, it's the power of enthusiasm and excitement. Yeah. What gives you confidence? Oh, what gives me confidence? Um, I'm, I'm thinking about situations where I've needed to draw on confidence. And um, so I 
like reminding myself that as soon as I start something, I'll be fine. And it comes from, um, I'm a violinist. I grew up playing violin and doing concerts. And I know that looking at the enormity of, you know, getting ready to perform can be really scary. But I remember I would get nervous, but as soon as I stepped on stage and started playing or started talking, I was fine. I had started. Um, I think preparation also probably gives me confidence because I knew that I was ready to do what I was doing. And as soon as I got it going and sort of started the process, it was much less scary. And now I apply that to something like, you know, starting to write a book. If you're just looking at this enormity of a book and that first blank page, that's terrifying. But if you just start, then it goes. Um, I'll do the same thing with a big grant proposal or a big scientific project. If something's really big and daunting and sitting in front of you, but you're prepared, you can just say, just start and you'll be fine. And it kind of helps you give the confidence to get going. That's great. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? So, unsurprisingly, I think any astronomer who also writes um, will have a lot of background with Carl Sagan. Um, I loved reading Contact when I was a kid. Um, but a, a book that really stands out to me, actually, is it's um, it's called A Man on the Moon. It's by Andrew Chaikin. Um, it was one of the books that actually inspired The Last Stargazers because it tells the story of the early crewed space program. It focuses on Apollo, but it kind of looks at, you know, the first people that went into space and the engineers that made it happen and the scientists that made it happen. But it does it with the people. It uses the human experiences and stories of the space program as a vehicle for then teaching people about the science and the technical challenges and, like, the political situation of all of it. Um, it seemed like a really great early example of how you can center people and human stories and then teach people about like astronautical engineering or orbital dynamics or something like that. Um, I don't recall exactly when the book came out, but I know that um, Tom Hanks turned the book into a miniseries uh, called From the Earth to the Moon on HBO. So I saw that miniseries in middle school and read the book and I just loved it. It was another example of this world where everybody loved geeky stuff and hard work and having fun solving these science challenges. So it was a nice early glimpse of the human adventures leading into this really awesome science. It's been so great talking with you. To have these a few minutes of a dive into your own enthusiasm and your own <laughs> knowledge, you're just, just wonderful. Thank you for imparting a little of that knowledge to me. I really appreciate it. And, it, and, I, and I, I hope I get a chance to talk to you again before too long. Thank you so much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Emily Levesque is a professor in the University of Washington's Astronomy Department, where her research focuses on how massive stars, like the red supergiants she described for us so eloquently, evolve and die. She's written two academic books on the subject. The book we discussed for a general audience is called The Last Stargazers, The Enduring Story of Astronomy's Vanishing Explorers. 
This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Malcolm Gladwell, whose skill at turning research in the social sciences into life lessons for the rest of us has led to best-selling books like The Tipping Point and his latest, Talking to Strangers. So all of us would say that we're more inclined to be lenient with someone who breaks the rules if, at the moment that we're considering punishment, they are remorseful. So what does remorseful mean? Well, we know what the words are, I'm sorry. But we want more than just, I'm sorry. We want them to look remorseful, right? So what does looking remorseful feel like? Well, it turns out there is no such thing as a remorseful look. We have all these ideas which are made up out of whole cloth. You know, we're not dogs. Dogs know how to look remorseful. You know, they lower their nose. They just make their tails go back and forth like a, just, just like a little bit. You know, they're, they have a whole thing, but usually they're just playing us. Malcolm Gladwell, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>